Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello, everyone. Um, my name's Sean, and I'm a program producer here at ACME. Uh, before we get started tonight, I uh, would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on tonight, the Wurundjeri people, and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. Uh, it is my great pleasure to welcome you all to tonight's session of Desert Island Flicks, uh, co-presented with the Emerging Writers Festival. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the program, Desert Island Flicks uh, is an ongoing series of events here at ACME that explores the cinematic interests of prominent Australians, uh, with a special guest castaway joining us in the studio to count down the top five favourite films of all time that they'd take to a desert island. Uh, everyone from Margaret Pomeranz to Bob Ellis has been cast away here at ACME, uh, but tonight we're doing things a little bit differently and sending not one but five guests to our desert island, uh, where they have been faced with the daunting task of picking just one film that has had a lasting impact on them and their work. Uh, facilitating this evening's event and offering up her own pick for Top Flick as well is Brodie Lancaster, uh, the former managing editor of Portable TV. Uh, Brody is the editor of the amazing Film Fatales, a quarterly zine focused on women in cinema. Uh, she's also a staff writer at Rookie and an editor at The Good Copy and has contributed to a range of websites and publications including Hello Mister, Senses of Cinema, The Vine and 3000. Uh, she's going to be joined tonight by Baroni Doyle, Rebecca Harkins-Cross, Serena, I hope I say this right, Massacore? No? Close? Anyway. Um, <laughs> And Greta Parry, uh, all of which Brady will introduce you to properly uh, uh, shortly as they unveil the films uh, that they've selected to take with them to the Acme Desert Island. Uh, before we get started, we will be recording tonight uh, for podcasts, so if you can turn off your phones, and at the end there will be a bit of a Q&A, so if you could just speak into the mic so we can record your question, that would be great. Um, that door is officially uh, locked now, so if you need to leave the space, there is an exit and en entrance uh, just down this alleyway here, so if you need uh, at any time to leave the space, that's the way to do it. Um, but that's it for me. So for now, please join me in welcoming Brody and tonight's panel of castaways. Okay. Am I on? Is that good? Can you hear? Okay. Um, thank you, Sean, and welcome everybody to tonight's event. Um, if you want to take any photos or tweet or anything, I assume photos is okay, but there's the EWF14 hashtag um, that's part of the festival. Um, we're going to kind of get right into it. The way tonight's going to work is that each of our panellists in this order and then looping back to me um, are going to, we're going to show a clip from their film and then they're going to speak to the film and then we're just kind of going to roll on, show everybody's and then we're going to have group discussion. So save your questions until the very end. Um, and we're going to get started with Bryony. Um, Bryony Doyle is a regular columnist for The Lifted Brow, a past contributor to Going Down Swinging, Mianjin and Overland. She's received performance commissions from the MCA Sydney and the Sydney Festival. And in 2013, she co-won the inaugural prize, the inaugural Scribe Prize for nonfiction. So please welcome Bryony. Um, I find it very hard to write about Australia. This is partially a landscape issue. 
When writing fiction, I don't open with the sunset. When I stare out over the canyon, my inner ear picks up no ambient string refrains. I will never publish a novel about a prodigal son returning to Mudgee under dubious compunction, only to fall in love with the quirky arborist's daughter while smoking a spliff in a treehouse at sunset. <laughs> the outback is beautiful, but it terrifies me. I was 18 before I saw it. In Cooperpedia, the sky goes all the way to the ground, which is red and flat, except for the gouged mine pits. The whole scene is Martian and used up. Time is trapped in the significance of the incident, the machine accident, the weather event, the dust storm which rises up and makes the sky the same red of the ground. It's a strange tourist location. People come to see the underground houses, the dusty opal stores. People come because it's the first place you can stop after 600 kilometres of forbidden desert, the Woomera prohibited zone, home to nuclear tests and refugee detention centres, home to indigenous communities with the same high instances of cancer that inexplicably surface in Nevada and New Mexico after the late 50s. On my first visit, I was with two girlfriends in a van travelling around Australia in a gap between high school and university. We circled the town and decided to pull into the caravan park instead of sleeping in the car outside the pub. We set up next to a single tent, pitched all alone in the corner, no vehicles, nothing. The front entrance to the tent was littered with empty cans of tomatoes and beans. Its occupant turned out to be a paraplegic, talkative, a bit nutso. He kept spinning yarns about how young girls like us will drink free when we get to Darwin and how he knows Yana went. And if we want, he'd get us on 60 minutes. <laughs> Apparently, Yana loves stories about young girls on adventures. The paraplegic's disability aroused more curiosity in me than sympathy. How did he get here? Who would drop a paraplegic man off in a caravan park in Cuba Pedi, alone with his beans and tomatoes and no way to leave? And why? During the night, the man used his torso to shuffle his unpegged tent around so he could see through the van window and masturbate. He pulled at his numb cock all night as we sleep. In the morning, when we woke, he used his free hand to beckon. Come closer. I see his chilling face in Doc from the 1971 Outback horror film Wake in Fright. They have the same grotesque desperation, the same terrible mystique. They engage the same sense surge of empathy in me. You've come to the end of the line. At this point, you'll take what you can get. Wake in Fright, in fact, is the most resonant and most terrifying Australian film I've ever seen. And at this point, I kind of want to say, I probably wouldn't take it to the island. And I didn't really know that that's the conceit that you would take this film to the island. So, you know, I'm not that much of a masochist. Um, when protagonist John Grant, a snobby city teacher stranded in Broken Hill Corollary, Bundin Yabba, after he loses his cash in a game of two-up, expresses curiosity over how this educated man, Doc, could have come to living in a tin shed in the middle of a harsh and insular outback town. He's told straight up, I'm a doctor of medicine and a tramp by temperament. I'm also an alcoholic. My disease prevented me from practicing in Sydney, but out here it's scarcely noticeable. Doc lives off the aggressive hospitality of the locals. They keep him in beer and food. In the Yabba, no one asks too many questions. In Cooperpedia, we didn't ask questions either. We just moved the van to the other side of the park. It's a survival mechanism from an edge of the map place. Some people are born here, some come out from a sense of altruism or adventure, and some people just end up here when a confluence of circumstance means that it's easier to survive in some of the hardest territory in the world than in the big cities with all their infrastructure and intention. This year, a friend invited us to make an extended stopover in her desert hideaway just outside of Cooperpedi. The dugout is all done up in elaborate Mad Max meets Mexican Day of the Dead meets Tank Girl. It's incredible. But even inhabiting a film set doesn't mask the terror. I can't ignore the absolute silence. With the sun glaring directly above the red soil, the light is even right up until it all turns black. 
I can't ignore the razor-sharp sorrow of the town, all the smashed windows, no place to get a cheap feed, and all the servo pies sold out by three. The trip was supposed to be a psychedelic homage to Castaneda, but the first night we slept in the dugout, I dreamed of chase and fright and blurry death, while my sweetheart dreamed that there were snakes crawling all over us. And then that there were spiders, and then that there was a giant scorpion with dripping fangs, and he couldn't wake me up, and I was going to die from scorpion bite for sure. We woke in fright. Are we going to take acid today? I asked tentatively <laughs> in the dark. I don't think so, he says. There are open mine shafts and skulls everywhere. We might decide that all we can do is sit in this room and hold each other for eight hours. We head to the pub where all the old men are watching Ultimate Fighting Challenge with glassy eyes and the whole scene is filled with grunts and thwacks and that's bloody rights. It's, flesh, it's a fleshed out version of the bar scenes in Wake in Fright. The fluoros pick out the sweat, the wide eyes and thick grins, an atmosphere both violent and compelling. Six beers in, you begin to feel the mania bubbling up to meet it. When I grow up, my sweetheart jokes, I want to be a local. I flash back on the kangaroo massacre scene on the edge of Bundinyaba, on the edge of the Bundinyaba bender, the violent rituals that consolidate local status. Across the bar, someone says, you're around. Ted Kotcheff, the director of Wake in Fright, is a Canadian. Does it take an outsider's eye to draw out the grotesque and thrilling in the Australian outback milieu for film? Or perhaps is an outsider the only one who might feel totally unapologetic doing so? It's probably part of moving towards a post-colonial consciousness, this intense pressure to feel connected to place in Australia, even when you're an outsider living in the interior, as most of us immigrants are, clustered in the cities, soft edges around a hot centre. The creative paralysis I suffer when writing Australia is probably an important process to be acknowledged well before overcome. I should show more patience. When writing Australia, the pressure is to represent the blood-red tones through rose-coloured lenses, romanticise the landscape, the outback, the suburbs, romanticise the history, the culture. And it is beautiful Australia, but not in a romantic sense, not in any way I can grasp. At a dinner party on the other side of the world, a Japanese academic, a friend, asked me, but don't you feel like you have some special relationship with country in Australia? She said country in that same way it's said by lefty arts workers and cautious anthropologists, an uneasy appropriation. This is pretty country, this is sacred country, this country is stolen. No, I said, and then amended, well, maybe somehow. It would have been difficult for me to explain the spiritual lack where she's seeking a whole, the outsider feeling where she's seeking story and secret meaning. She looked at me quizzically. I thought all Australians had some special understanding of land, she said. No, no more than anyone else. But I do think about it sometimes. It's something like a problem for me, not that I want it to go away. I let my sentence trail off into my wine. The outback remains behind us somewhere, always compelling and menacing, always broad and open for interpretation. Thanks. so much to say already <laughs> um but we're moving on to uh becky um rebecca harkins cross is a writer journalist and critic her work focuses on arts and culture and has appeared in the pages of meangin crikey the australian book review kill your darlings sense of cinema to name just a few she's the theater critic for the age the film editor at the big issue and writes a bi-monthly column on australian cinema for the lifted brow so there's no way there's no way um, that I would read the mortifying piece of writing um, that this film inspired for me. It was an undergrad essay that only in 2,500 words managed to strip any scenes like that of their magic and their mystery. 
with words like fluidity and multiplicity <laughs> and homogeneity and suture. Um, <laughs> um, I completely bastardised really dated post-colonial and post-structural theory that I didn't understand at all to argue basically yay multiculturalism. Um, <laughs> my 18-year-old self, who was a fresh-faced country kid, um, just arrived in the big smoke, uh, thought what Australian film needed was a great big melting pot. <laughs> um, I didn't know it at the time, but Clara Law's road movie would become one of the most significant films in my own personal viewing history, partially due to the wonderful lecturer who introduced me to it in a class on contemporary Australian cinema, um, who just as significantly encouraged me in my writing when I was really young and really unsure. So I pulled this essay out of a box in the shed to um, research for this talk, and I'm really not sure why she did now. Um, it's somewhat ironic that it's a, it was a director who'd only recently immigrated from Hong Kong to Australia, a film about a blind girl and a Japanese man driving across the outback in a French car that gave me an entry point for watching and for trying to understand Australian cinema a sometimes unsettling, often cringeworthy, always strange hodgepodge of films whose vision of the nation can be just as unrecognisable to its, as, to its inhabitants as to outsiders like the blind girl, the Japanese man, and to Clara Law herself. I've been writing about Australian film and trying to pin it down ever since, um, but I find that most of the time within my work it's the films that I find more troublesome uh, that I really want to write about rather than those that I adore without reservation. The way the outsider sees the world can be a really useful perspective for a critic. Sometimes our acuity is at its sharpest when we're on the margins, when we're faced with the unknown. The interloper can look past the facade and identify strangeness for what it is. But the more insight that position gives you, the quicker your alien status dissipates. The outsider can't remain an outsider forever. In The Goddess of 1967, Clara Law creates this completely uncanny way of looking at Australia. It's familiar, but it's totally unsettling at the same time. All the scenes that are shot within the car, which is the majority of the film, are on really obvious green screen. The performances um, are really mannered, often in a way that is quite humorous and not always intentionally. Um, but she never allows us to kind of relax and forget that we're, we're just watching a film. She's shot the landscape in the same way, so it's really high contrast and really oversaturated. Often it looks like the early work of Aboriginal photographer Tracy Moffat, which encourages us to remember the uncomfortable history that's always the Janus face of any representation of the outback. The car itself, the goddess, is a pink 1967 Citroen DS, which is this kind of retro futuristic car that looks perfectly at home in Clara Law's uh, representation of Australia. When Roland Barthes first saw it, he said it's obvious that the new Citroen's fallen from the sky. For the Japanese man, and um, throughout the film, they're only ever referred to with names that kind of imply they're different. So he's the Japanese man and she's the blind girl. But for him, it's a means of escape. It's a car that he saw on the cinema screen and it's a dream of the kind of man that he wants to be. But for the blind girl, it, tri it ties her to a really troubled history it's something that's been passed down through maternal generations. It's something that all the women in her family have loved. Um, but it's become this repository for the really painful memories that they've accumulated over the years as well. Um, in the scene that I showed, that's them 
visiting supposedly the oldest pub in the outback, um, which for me completely calls to mind Wake in Fright, uh, a film that kind of revealed that horrifying flip side of the national character, the beer-soaked, fly-ridden nightmare that lies in colonial, colonial Australia's dead heart. That scene where he's teaching her to dance um, is so joyous and it's kind of, you know, this moment where they can finally communicate um, beyond barriers of language um, and a vision that they've faced before. Um, but the thing that it allows them to see in the following scene isn't something joyous or something beautiful at all. It's something that's completely horrific. The film's central secret is a history of sexual abuse that, like the car itself, has been passed down from grandmother to mother to, to daughter. In Clara Law's first film that she made when she arrived in Australia, Floating Life, it was about a Hong Kong family trying to assimilate in the unforgiving suburbs. When they arrive, the older sister, who's been there a few years before, tells her parents about the country's dangers, holes in the ozone layer, killer wasps, poisonous spiders and pit bull terriers that she describes like these mythical beasts who stalk the suburbs and once they lock their jaws on you, they won't let you go. And there's a really great scene where, um, where Jack Russell runs up to the grandmother and she runs away screaming, I think it's really <laughs> cool. Um, her final film in Australia, the 2004 documentary Letters to Ali, followed an Australian family who begin writing letters to a boy in a detention centre and eventually drive all the way from their farm in northern Victoria to Port Hedland to visit him. Um, in the closing credit, she dedicates the film to her father who'd wanted to see it but died before she finished. One of the final things he'd said to her was that he'd really one day like to see the land of Australia. He describes it as nature forever beautiful. But while Clara Law found some beauty here, she also found unthinkable cruelty as well. Soon after making Letters to Ali, she returned to Asia and she didn't make any more films here again. One wonders if what the outsider saw was finally too much to bear. Um, again, I would not want to take the goddess of 1967 <laughs> to a desert island with me at all. Um, I think I'd go crazy pretty quickly. But it led me to the Australian films that I do love without reservation. Films like Jane Campion's Sweetie, uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, Wake in Fright, um, the one featured Tracy Moffat made Bedevil, The Year My Voice Broke, The Last Days of Shenu. Um, I could do that forever. Um, but it also gave me a framework through which to think about a new crop of Australian filmmakers who give me so much hope for what people are making in Australia today. People like Ivan Sen, Warwick Thornton, Julia Lee and Amiel Corton-Wilson. Um, through kind of exaggerating that strangeness of Australian cinema, it showed up all the, the ruptures and the inconsistencies for me that films that claimed that they were more kind of realistic representations of Australia always had inherent within them. Um, it taught me how to see the strangeness and how to love it regardless. Um, our next speaker is Serena Masukor, who is a writer from Sydney, whose work focuses on film and contemporary art and sometimes the crossover between the two. Her work's been published in Discipline, Dust Super Paper. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Metro, Intellects Film Guides and Around the Web. She's currently completing a PhD on cinema's visual thinking. So for this panel, I don't know if this has been mentioned yet, but we were asked to choose a film that's influenced our writing. And so choosing was quite easy for me, I think, because before I wrote about this film, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, I didn't really write. I wrote my honours thesis on this film 
And it was in the process of writing about it that I think revealed to me what I might be able to do in film criticism that would be different from what other people were doing. Up until that point, I'd been a reader rather than a writer, so this film has had a direct influence on me writing and on my style. I'm sorry, I have a, I've had quite a bad cold, so I might sound a bit croaky. Um, so one of the things that I find when I read criticism is that the experience of the film and the feeling that you take from the images when you watch a film is lost. Articles are usually really great at drawing out themes, putting films in cultural and historical context, and less great at giving you an idea of how it is to see the film. And this has always been a real letdown um, in reading criticism for me because being a reader of novels, I know that language is perfectly capable of conjuring up the visual and evoking a sense of time. So I think you could make the argument that the purpose of film writing is to supplement the film, not to replace it, and I do agree with that. But I also think film writing can support a film and translate some of its affects to inspire people who might not want to see a film to go and see it. Um, I also think a fantastic piece of film writing can stand on its own. And I don't think you can write a piece like that without evoking some of what is most exciting about the film. And in a film like The Killing of a Chinese Bookie and, and in John Cassavetti's other films, what is exciting is the quality and use of light, the detours, the way the camera roves around the screen, the colour, the development of character through the image and the way the film is cut. So... Um, I wrote a short piece about this for SBS Film website and I described the plot like this. I'm just going to quote a little bit of my own work. <laughs> the Killing of a Chinese Bookie is a gangster tale, a love story, a film noir and an experiment in light, colour and form. It is a rambling, churning, caring film that is difficult in parts and splendid in others. In short, Cosmo Vitelli, played by Ben Gazzara, who we just saw in the clip, stumbles into debt and in an attempt to keep his failing but beloved nightclub, the Crazy Horse West, murders a bookie. So the scene that I showed today um, comes from quite early in the film. It's, it's kind of like the second scene. Cassavetes films really long scenes. Um, so it's, it comes quite early. And it, it's definitely not the most exciting film, uh, clip that you'll see. Um, but I think it's really key to the film because it sets up an element that's going to become really central to the film as a whole, um, and that is the idea of the detour. In the previous scene, which is the opening scene, Cosmo has just paid off a gambling debt, and he's on his way to his club, the Crazy Horse West, for the evening. He stops off at a bar and has a drink, and the film stops off at a bar and has a drink with him. After his drink, the cab driver comes in like, just after this scene. And it's interesting because um, when I was watching the film the other day or when I was choosing the clip, I actually had watched... The, there are two cuts of this film, one cut in 1976 and one cut in 1978. And I think the clip that I actually described to Sean to cut was from the other version. <laughs> so they're slightly different. He walks... At the end of the clip, he sort of walks into a different room... Um, in the clip I watched, then, then he walks into this one. It, it's interesting to me anyway. <laughs> um, so, uh, so after the drink, um, the cab driver comes in, tells him it's time to go, and then the, the plot kind of starts up again. And this rhythm of stopping, lingering, and then plunging ahead with the plot is key to the experience of watching the film. 
So it was this rhythm that influenced how I approached writing about the film. So here's a paragraph from the same article that I mentioned before. The film is a string of these flights and caesuras, moments of action followed by mundane interruptions, hesitations broken by bursts of untrammeled energy. The camera pauses on a door handle, breathes, and then rushes forward as Cosmo collapses into a room. A girl, running, is stopped by a sticking door and there is a moment of stillness. Then the door bursts open, light floods in, and the film goes on. So I guess what I was... Um, what I have been trying to do there and what I always try to do when I'm writing about film is to take some of the energy from the film um, and sort of structure the piece around the structure of the film. And I think it, it's um, possible to do this, you know, even if you're writing for a publication that publishes to a pretty set structure because, um, like in, in that example, you can do that within the sentence. So obviously this is kind of a work in progress and being able to do it well is something that I'm still working on and I don't always do it successfully. Um, but I do always just try to find the film's energy and put some of that into my writing. Um, so our next speaker is Greta Parry, who's the the editor of Screen Education Magazine and the sub-editor for Metro Magazine. She has a Master's in Editing and Communications and an Honours Degree in Cinema Studies. And when she's not spending her time mastering analogue photography, she's probably watching Seinfeld or trashy Hollywood movies from two decades ago, one of which, not so trashy, she will be talking about right now. When I was asked to be on this panel and I heard the Desert Island thing, like it was so obvious to me that it's Back to the Future, um, not only because it's hugely entertaining and it's always been one of my favourite things ever, but also it's kind of cheating because it's a trilogy, so it's like I'm taking all three films with me and it's going to keep me much more entertained. Um, no, but that's not really all I want to talk about. Um, the, one of the other things that is so wonderful about this and on an entertainment level is that there's like basically every genre under the sun encapsulated in these three films. There's like, it's a sci-fi, it's a comedy, it's got adventure, it's got a Western in part three. There's action obviously, and there's drama and romance. And it's just like, you know, this incredible Hollywood romp and I, I love it to pieces. So I'm probably just gonna gush a lot through this. And I'm gonna try to be like serious also. Um, but also it's um, so incredibly complex. Like I reckon, oh. oh. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> sneak preview. Um, uh, okay, so um, I think I probably watch the trilogy at least once a year because I can't stop going back to it because every time I watch it, there's just some amazing, mind-blowing thing that I discover about, about the whole thing that is, yeah. It's, I'm going to go into some of that now. Um, so I think uh, what I basically want to talk about is how there is so much value in something that is seemingly so like surface level entertainment. Um, I think on many levels you could analyze it in terms of like um, his, its historical or political or social elements, like there's so much content in those three films um, and four eras that it spans across in its time traveling. Um, but also at the level of filmmaking, it is just phenomenally impressive. Um, so, like, the logistics of filming the multiple overlapping storylines is just, like, it blows my mind every time I see it. Um, trivia, they only... They made the first one in 1985 and never intended to make any more. 
And like when you watch the trilogy, it's just I can't even believe that that was possible because all three are so seamless. And so they went back the studio when it was so successful. Were like we need to make a sequel, and the the filmmakers were like, well, it's our baby, and you're not going to do it without us. So they went and did um, they filmed. Um, part two and three concurrently. So it's just like this incredible like feat of filmmaking. Um, and the screenwriting by Bob Gale is just like, yeah, I love it so much and it's got so many gems in it. And like, you know, they go from 19, like while well, they, in a chronological order in terms of the timeline, they do 1885, 1955, 1985, and 2015, as well as an alternate 1985. Um, and like, it, it's tied together so beautifully, and the logic of time travel works, which is really hard to do. And there's just so many incredible um, repeating motifs through the whole thing and story elements. Like uh, in every film, there's a scene where Marty confronts Griff or Biff or Mad Dog in, um, in the cafe or the saloon. Um, and in every, every uh, film, Marty wakes up and thinks he's had this terrible dream and a version of his mother is always there saying, it's okay, you're safe back here in 1955. And he like freaks out. <laughs> like there's just all these wonderful things that just reward multiple viewings so much. But I just wanna go into a bit of detail about one element of it to prove to all of you how amazing this is. <laughs> if you haven't been convinced already. Um, so I wanted to talk about nostalgia because for me, that is the overarching thing that I take from the trilogy. Um, it's, it's always stood out more than anything else. And, and um, as I sort of looked into the trilogy again and you know, reveled in the chance to rewatch it, um, I was thinking about nostalgia and um, I realized that there are actually four levels of nostalgia operating. Like, and it's sort of, again, just like, I, I just, every time I watch it, I get more from these films, these films. So I wanna go through the nostalgia, the four levels that I've discovered. Um, so the first one is the most obvious one, is for us watching it now, there's a total nostalgia for the 1980s. Um, so it was made in 1985, you know, the, the core story is set in 1985. So, I mean, watching a production of that era, like people our age, there's always gonna be a level of nostalgia, seeing, you know, the fashion, the technology, and the actors, like seeing a, you know, a really cute young Michael J. Fox. Um, and I think the other thing on that level is like so many, um, Hollywood blockbusters from the 1980s, there's this incredible championing of wholesome values that we've kind of, uh, I don't know, either become, uh, we've lost a little bit or we've become too cynical to appreciate them maybe, or maybe that's just me, but um, there's just, you know, there's obviously a lot more issues going on in the 80s in terms of all the social stuff and, you know, no one's ever perfect, no ear is perfect, but um, there's just this incredible, wholesome, pure, I don't know, it's very heartwarming to me that these values that the, the film's champion are just so, um, you know, it's, it is fantasy and I think that's very nostalgic as well. You know, I guess you think of your childhood when everything was ideally rosy. <laughs> um, also, uh, at that level, I think the production stories about Back to the Future are pretty legendary among like film fans and just fans of that era. So Michael J. Fox at the time was, um, he could only do night shoots because he was working on family ties during the day. So they had to sort of use stand-ins for the day scenes for him and then just all, this, all the scenes with him were shot at night and he was just basically not sleeping for the whole shoot. Um, Crispin Glover, who plays his father, was apparently a nightmare to work with and demanded all these other things and he's got these other stories. So there's this sort of like historical like 
you know, drama between him and, and the producers. Um, and of course, Eric Stoltz was originally cast as Marty McFly, and so they shot a whole lot of part one with Eric Stoltz before realising that it wasn't working at all, and then they had to, like, scrap all those scenes at a huge cost to Universal and, um, and get and, yeah, go in to try and get Michael J. Fox, which, you know, I love Eric Stoltz dearly, but thank God they did get Michael J. Fox. Okay, so that's sort of like, um, you know, all that stuff is, has made this trilogy like a total icon of the 1980s. I, I think very few people would have grown up um, in that era and not seen at least one of the films. So, yeah, so there's that surface level of nostalgia. The second level is um, the trilogy's obvious nostalgia for the past eras that they, tra they travel to, so the 1950s and the Wild West. Um, so in the 1950s, we've got this really um, idealised birth of suburbia um, with the nuclear family and they've got a TV and it's really exciting. There's this great scene where Marty's at the dinner table and he's like, oh, this is a rerun. And they're like, what's a rerun? <laughs> they're watching like some old show. Um, and then so when they go back into the Wild West in part three and it's the 1880s and that's kind of like the birth of America and that's again really idealised when obviously there are so many dark undercurrents that are going on in both eras. Um, and the films are especially nostalgic for these eras as they are presented in classical Hollywood cinema. So I think that's another thing, like the 1950s is very much like reminiscent of 1950s films and Again, the Wild West is like it's filmed where all those things are, you know, all the old classic westerns are filmed in the, um, I don't know what it's called, but like the, the valley with the big American rocks, you know, that thing. <laughs> um, and, I mean, Spielberg was executive producer on this and, and Robert Zemeckis was the director and you can tell they just adore Hollywood and, and that really comes through. So there's that great nostalgia for past eras and past Hollywood. Um, and then... The third level that I picked up on was the trilogy's nostalgia for the 1980s, even though they were made in the 1980s. And I think this is especially um, explicit in part two, um, when I think we will know part two well, where they, oh, I'm just assuming everybody knows it. <laughs> they go into the future and, and trivia, it's 2015 that they go into, so like, let's look out for the hoverboards next year. <laughs> um, but when, they, when he goes into the future in, in, the, in part two, they, there's this 1980s retro cafe and they've got like arcade games in there and another bit of trivia, a very young Elijah Wood playing the arcade game. Um, and, you know, Michael Jackson computer waiters that come down and ask you like if you want a Pepsi and stuff. Um, and then there's also the antique stores, um, uh, the antique store that he gets the um, almanac from and it's got like an, an old 1980s computer and then um, like a dustbuster and I also wanted to add this in saying is it's a writers festival um, that there's like they're like look here's a book with a dust jacket these things used to be used before they invented dustproof paper <laughs> so we'll look out for that next year also <laughs> um, so yeah there's there's a there's a very strange nostalgia for the time that they're living in which is quite um, strange and you don't you don't really see a lot of that in any era, like a nostalgia for the present, but they definitely had it in that. Um, and the fourth level, which relates to the clip, is the trilogy's nostalgia for itself, which once I realised that this was happening, it just became so obvious to me. Um, it's really quite profound as you watch the trilogy, and so it, it becomes really quite obvious in part two when, um, in that scene, Marty has had to go back to 1955 because, um, basically, Biff in the future had discovered there was a time machine and taken the almanac back to his younger self and has been like, you know, you need to um, bet on all these uh, 
these, these are all the results to everything until the year 2000, go and bet on all the sporting things, become a millionaire, and as a result of that, you know, the, the space-time continuum is totally fucked and they have to, like, go back and try to intercept Biff getting the almanac. So they essentially what they do is revisit um, part one. And they go back and the scene from part one where Marty is at the, the, um, the sea, you know, school ball... Exactly, where he invented Jerry Lee Lewis, like the cousins on the phone going, it's your cousin Marvin Lewis. Or, <laughs> wait, maybe it's not Jerry Lee Lewis, but it's something like that. Jim Berry. Jim, yeah, Marvin Berry, that's right, Marvin Berry. Um, that sound you've been looking for, I think I found it. <laughs> so great. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, he goes back and you can see in that clip that there's two versions of Marty there and like, you know, Michael J. Fox does the whole postmodern thing of like total deja vu and it's like, oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> We're all having deja vu right now. But, you know, when you watch part two and you revisit um, part one, when they go back into it and you see it from that sort of new perspective, you do feel overwhelming nostalgia for part one. And, and again, in, in part three, like they revisit earlier instalments in other ways and it's just... Not many films I know have like this overt nostalgia for for itself, and I think it probably also relates to the um, the, the producers and the directors' love of Hollywood, and and really they created this pure Hollywood product that is already like as soon as it was made, I feel like it was probably really iconic, and um, it sort of canonized the trilogy as one of those classics that it was emulating. Um, so yeah, so I, I think what I wanted to point out with all this nostalgia talk is um, is that. I've always been a really, um, going through uh, uni and a lot of people really loving a lot of the avant-garde films and, and there's so much value in those, of course, but I was always a massive supporter of blockbusters and Hollywood and I think there's a lot of value to be, um, to be gained from, from looking at these films more deeply and, and even something as overtly blockbuster as Back to the Future has got so much going on and it's such a beautiful product of Hollywood. And those two are not mutually exclusive, like having Hollywood and, and something that's really worthy. So um, the way this relates to my work, I suppose, is that um, the magazine I edit now, Screen Education, is um, you know, a magazine that is written largely for teachers to assist them in teaching media and teaching other things to their students through the moving image. And while we certainly do a lot of avant-garde and, and independent stuff, like I think there's a lot of value in, in accessibility and in teaching through something that's familiar. And, and um, yeah, I'm in the process of commissioning like a giant piece on Back to the Future, actually. <laughs> so I'm going to be like, listen to the podcast. <laughs> listen to what I say and write it. Um, no, he can write other things as well. But... Um, <laughs> um, yeah, now. yeah. Mm. Um, basically, yeah, that um, it is a desert island film for me, absolutely, and it is also brilliant. And there's so much stuff to be learnt from it, and I could talk about it forever, but I won't. I just want to finish with one final bit of trivia because I think it's hilarious, and I only realised this in the um, in the research for the panel. Um, so when they when Universal first greenlighted the film, the studio head had three requests, and one of them was he didn't want the guy, uh, doc to be called Professor because he was originally called Professor and they were like, yeah, that's fine. Um, <clears throat> so they changed it to Doc. The other one was um, Doc's a little um, animal was a chimp 
and the head was like, you can't, a no movie is going to be successful with a chimp in it, change it to a dog. So then we got Einstein as the dog. But the most hilarious one was like, he's, I hate the title, the title's terrible, Back to the Future is a terrible title, it's never going to go well, we need Spaceman from Pluto. <laughs> 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 and this was the title that he wanted it to be. Spielberg um, intercepted and like sent him a memo and was like, hey, thanks for that suggestion, we all got a great laugh. And then he was, he, was too he was too proud to admit that he wasn't joking, and so it was never named Spaceman from Pluto. Thank God, the end. <laughs> so we started at Wake and Fright, and now we're at Spaceman from Pluto. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so Sean has already introduced who I am, so we're just going to go straight into the clip, and this will be our final clip before I talk, and then we'll have a chat. Um, and there was never a question for me about which film I'd speak about tonight because when it comes to heroines in cinema who have taught me to work hard, nobody tops Josie Alabrandi. Um, I take for granted that everyone has seen Looking for Alabrandi because for me it's like an affection for this movie is like a Medicare card. It's just something that all Australians should have. But um, it wasn't until Greta told me that she watched the film for the first time over the weekend and sent me a text with like smiley face, Italian flag, emoji, tomato. <laughs> that, like, that's how she described the feeling getting watching the movie. Um, and that was when I realised that it's not as ubiquitous as I had assumed. Um, so the clip, for those who haven't seen the film, shame on you, that the clip you just saw for some context came immediately after one uh, that I think is one of the most iconic scenes in teen films, Australian films, every film ever made. Um, after accepting a cup, and you saw a little bit of Jacob at the start, um, after accepting a cup of tea from his dad and looking at photos of his late mother, Josie and her new not quite official boyfriend Jacob almost have sex in his bed. When she tells him she's not ready, they get into another in a long line of arguments about Jacob's casual and uncomplicated approach to life and Josie's tendency to oversimplify his cultureless Australianness in comparison to her Italian heritage that informs so much of who she is. You saw her nonna in that clip fussing about putting, like, I don't know, like LSA on her muesli and she's taking her Italian exam and she's got her rosary beads. Um, it, it's a huge part of the film and her um, identity. Um, rather than dwelling on that argument, adjusting her behaviour to suit what she thinks Jacob wants or needs in a girlfriend or moaning to her friends about their fucked up relationship, she puts the fight on hold and concentrates on preparing for the HSC, as we saw. Despite the fact that Josie spends a good chunk of the film thinking and talking about boys, not just Jacob, but also John Barton, the school captain of the prestigious St Anthony's and the son of the New South Wales Liberal Premier, who re represents so much of what she thinks she wants out of life, um, these boys are never the most important thing to Josie. She wants to work hard on her exams to get into law at uni, something she tells her nonna Katia repeatedly when she cries, why be a lawyer when you can marry one? I have seen this film so many times that an impression of nonna <laughs> is in my head when I say that and I have to like fight the urge to like do a probably really racist like caricature of this old Italian nonna. Um, but that's all I can hear when I say those words. Um, the film opens with a shot of a plane flying low over suburban Sydney um, in a backyard where Josie's trying her best to avoid taking part in the annual tomato bottling activity led by her Sicilian relatives. It is, as Josie begrudgingly refers to it, National Bloody Wog Day. You might think this is all quirky and cute, but I actually find this really embarrassing, Josie tells us through voiceover. Again, I have to try not to say it in her exact intonation because I've heard it so many times. 
A year later, in the final scene of the film, Josie's back at Tomato Day, not as an entirely new person, but one with a few more patches on her jacket. Because in the past year, we've watched her complete high school, assault a bitchy model, hold on to John Barton's dying wishes. Spoiler alert, sorry guys. Um, you probably studied it in year 10, you know what happens. Um, forge a relationship with her father and uncover the truth about her mother's paternity. Looking for Ella Brandy, um, for me, is not so much a coming of age story as it is a coming to terms story. We see Josie, a character of multitudes, coming to terms with the fact that her identity is dictated by so many colliding forces outside of her control. She's a third-generation Italian-Australian, a child of a single parent, a bastard, a vice-captain, a wog on a handout, as a talkback radio host refers to people who are scholarship recipients like her. Um, and as she surveys the traditional activity in her backyard, she moulds these things over through voiceover before arriving at the film's uncertain but wholly realistic conclusion. I'd always dreamt of being someone really impressive and famous, you know, someone people could sit back and envy, but I know now that what's important is who I feel I am. And this kind of represents everything that we've watched Josie go through to get up to that point. She, there are so many things that are outside of her control, but the way she feels about herself and the people around her is the only thing that she can control, and that's really comforting to her and to me as a viewer. Um, but I know that the theme for tonight was films we would take to a desert island that have influenced our writing in some way. And as much as I would take Looking for Ella Brandy to a desert island, it's never, I've never written about the film, but I have kind of taken it somewhere with me. Um, so for a little backstory, when I was 21, I accepted a job offer in New York and moved to the city thinking that I had all my shit together. Um, and I was kind of like Josie at the start of the movie. I thought I knew everything, I could do everything, I wouldn't listen to anyone who tried to tell me any different. Um, my best friend Anton got a scholarship to NYU and moved with me at the same time and a few days after he joined me in the city we watched Looking Fella Brandy which had played a big role in forging our friendship years earlier and we sobbed the entire way through the movie and didn't watch it again for months. It was blacklisted, we had the DVD but we wouldn't watch it. Um, neither of us really understood before then how much the film depicted our experiences of home or how closely we related to Josie until we were so far removed from like far removed physically from the familiarity of the accents and the brand names and the soundtrack that was filled with spider bait and magic dirt and killing Heidi and other just sounds that really represent the year 2000 in Australia. Um, oh, sorry, that's me again. Um, we, Anton and I talked about the film exhaustively for the year that I lived in the States with him, but we didn't watch it again until the night before I was flying home to Melbourne because this was a really special occasion. And again, we sobbed from beginning to end. Um, and soon after I arrived back here in Melbourne, I started work on the first issue of Film for Tarts, which is my zine that's all about women in film. Um, and I knew I somehow had to find space for Anton and I to honour what Josie meant to us. So in issue two, which I have here, um, which was themed around music and film, I got my chance and I had Anton write a letter um, and an annotated mixtape to Jacob as Josie, living out our shared dream of being part of this story. And it's, to, for reference, it's a handwritten three-page love letter with a mixtape featuring songs from the film's soundtrack. So I'm just going to read a little bit of that right now. Dear Jacob, the letter begins, I miss you so much, I can't believe I'm grounded. Mama found your footy socks on my bed. I told her you just took them off while we watched Wheel of Fortune on top of the doona, but she didn't believe me. I guess it doesn't help that she was a total putana at my age. I love you, Jacob. I'm praying to the Virgin Mary that I'm freed soon, but I don't think she's very sympathetic. 
The mixtape, which then goes over the next two pages, features songs from the film soundtrack, including Lotel's Teenager of the Year, which we heard in that um, clip. And he wrote, Anna and I, or Josie wrote, Anna and I sing along to this while we work the late shift at a porto. Anna thinks we should go on Hey Hey it's Saturday, but I reckon Red would gong us straight away. Um, it also features I'm the Problem with Society by Friends or Rom. I play this in the salon to piss off Nonna. It's also good to listen to on my Walkman when I have to share a bed with her and she wants to talk about the bloody old country. And Hamish, my favourite, Hamish Cohen's cover of With or Without You that plays during John Barton's funeral in the film. R.I.P. John Barton. Also, who even remembers what band sang this originally? This version is always going to be the one everyone remembers. Um, so, <laughs> it's a little bit of the writing the film has inspired. Um, and beyond the way the film deals with race in the context of working class Australia, entitlement and privilege in the context of private, the private school system and teenage sex and romance across the social boundaries of both of these, the thing that's most exciting for me about Looking for Ella Brandy is the way that Josie's drive and determination makes her such an iconic and important character. I've never seen a depiction of young female Australianness on screen Sorry, that wine, is, I'm now feeling it. Um, <laughs> like the one portrayed by Pia Miranda in this film. Josie is not an academically gifted screen heroine who mentions an important exam in Act One and then aces it in the film's climax without any other mention of it. She studies hard and procrastinates by vacuuming her room and anxiously threads prayer beads through her hands. She gets cramps from writing with her standard issue biro during her HSCs. It's so rare that we see a female character in film with such focused ambition let alone the fact that we watch her working to achieve what she wants. I can't think of another film where I've seen someone study so hard and be so singularly focused on her goals without coming across as two-dimensional two or a dorky caricature. Josie is the opposite of the manic pixie dream girl, a filmic trope describing female characters that only exist for the benefit of their male love interests. What Josie desires is most important. I feel like it's been three hours since we watched The Kangaroos, but um, <laughs> if we want to go back to that, I, I had a question for the panel that also extends to everyone in the audience, is who had seen all five of these films before tonight? One. One person. Gold star. Okay, good. So we all saw something different and, um, and very different from film to film. Um, I was kind of a dork during that and took notes about... Because I hadn't seen all of them either. I had only seen Back to the Future and um, obviously Looking for Ella Brandy. And so I was taking a lot of notes about the way every film had relevance to one another and I went a little bit over the top. But um, I wanted to ask um, Bryony why the Rue hunting scene was, was the clip. Um... It stuck with me the most from my first watching of the film because it, it is the most horrific. Mm -hmm. Why I picked it is, I don't, know, I don't know. If I went back in time, I'd probably pick a different clip. I just yeah. was thinking of the most horrific clip and I mm. hadn't watched the film again mm. to pick. I think the other clip, like the most like socially horrifying clip in mm. that would be the two-up scene. I don't know if anyone mm. remembers the two-up scene and all of the close-ups of like the sweat and people's grubby toenails on mm. the floor. And when I was watching it over today, just so that I had it fresh in my mind, I was thinking, oh, I should have played this clip mm. because this really like gives us more of an idea of like 
the boil or the simmer that happens before this boil, this climax scene. And the, the Rue hunt is like that nighttime Rue hunt we saw was the second Rue hunt straight mm. after the daytime Rue yeah. hunt as well. I've now seen that clip three times today. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> me too. I'm yeah. a little traumatised. Um, but I also, I feel desensitised to it, which is maybe more upsetting um, and maybe more in line with how these characters feel. Like, it's so commonplace yeah. that it's no longer like this traumatic awful thing like what we see John experiencing but it's tra it's transformative for John I think like yeah. this whole, his whole like getting stuck in Boon and Yabba he goes mm. through so much emotionally during it when I first saw Wake in Fright I was really hungover, and like that is that is the worst way to see Wake in Fright and it might have really um, impacted on how horrific I found it for those who haven't seen it the bulk of the film is just drunk Australian men which is one of the reasons that Greta had her pint glass taken away before, we walked, before you guys don't walked in. Her. Because, sorry, <laughs> it's so you didn't know. Sorry. Um, yeah, but having seen that that clip now three times today is because um, I saw I was watching it earlier today. I was telling everybody earlier. Um, I watched the initial Rue hunt that happens during the day. And I'd read so much about the film that I knew that the Rue Hunt was coming and it's like the big scene in the film. And um, I was kind of like, oh, that was nothing. And then this one happened and it was that unsimulated. Yeah. Um, and there are like, this film is really mythologized in the way that it's written about, like because the, the negatives were almost lost, they were almost destroyed before the, the film was restored. And... And that scene is, is the same way because there's this story behind it. Do you want to maybe tell a little about the story behind it? I only know what they say at the, at the end of yeah. the film, which is just essentially that they, they filmed licensed kangaroo, mm. a licensed kangaroo hunt or licensed kangaroo hunters, mm. and then they um, put the whole thing in uncut. Yeah. Yeah. Supposedly the, the filmmakers and the crew were so outraged by the behaviour of the hunters as well, who were just like getting progressively drunker throughout the hunt that they kind of were passing out and vomiting and just kind of like decided to hightail it and call it quits. Yeah. Yeah, which you kind of can understand when you see what is depicted there. The mania of that film is so is so intense and part of the reason that it works so well and mm. it resonates so much, I think. And mm. like that's the climax scene, sort of one of the climax. Another really big climax scene is when he he wakes up from his bender after this after they've had the Rue hunt and he's he, he's been given a gun but he's completely dishevelled and he's bloodstained from the kangaroos and he's shabby and he walks through the actual town with the gun over his shoulder and all the people are just looking at him like mm, mm. but just not saying anything mm. it's really interesting because when we all um, like three out of the five films that we've chosen coincidentally are all about Australia and there's a little bit of crossover in between the way that like the outback is depicted like, there's, there's always that outsider's perspective in all three, like in Looking for the Brandy and The Goddess of 1967 and in Waking Fright, the way that the outsider's perspective is brought to life on the screen. But there's that... The way the outback is treated as well is so different in The Goddess and in Waking Fright, where in Goddess it's kind of a nurturing force that the blind girl is, like, a part of, whereas in Waking Fright it's something... Do you agree? Not entirely. Um... I think, like, what they're eventually going on this journey towards ends up where the grandfather, who's the kind of perpetrator of the horror, is he's a miner and he lives in this um, this kind of burnout caravan just beside his um, his mine shaft, um, and 
yeah, I don't, like, in a lot of ways, it's not really a nurturing thing at all. It's something mm. that neither of them, because she can't actually see it, um, and he, it's completely foreign to him, neither of them are never entirely at home in that landscape. Mm. There's this really great scene where um, he's got all these reptiles at home in Tokyo, um, and he sees a lizard by the side of the road and pulls the car over, and there's, you know... Um, Ty is skidding because um, he wants to grab this lizard and as soon as he goes for it, it, it latches onto his finger um, and she says it's a bog eyes, it won't let you go until it forgives you, so they have to sit by the side of the road for hours um, while he, like, coos to the lizard and tries to let it uh, let him go. Yeah. Mm. Um, I was thinking more about, like, the, the dingo scene where it's almost like this, like, ritual it almost looks like they're yeah. sacrificing her she wakes up yeah. And she's kind of surrounded by these dingoes who, rather than attacking her, are kind of, like, protecting her from yeah. whatever else is out there that's obviously people that yeah. have caused her harm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm. Um, I was interested that you brought up Tracy Moffat in your kind of initial film learnings and, and the relationship between... or the similarities between the visuals because that was one of my first like experiences exposure to kind of like avant-garde Australian cinema as well and I was wondering what the rest of the panel what your kind of like initial experiences in writing about film were if you remember what those first films were or what you were shown when you were studying or anything like that I obviously already spoke about (laughs) yeah so um I didn't really study film so I didn't get that experience but I have recently been um, teaching at Deakin and we did teach Night Cries and it was Mm. interesting to see that a lot of the students there, that was their first Mm. kind of writing about Australian avant-garde film and Mm. the way that they took to it and the interpretations that they took from it and the links Mm. that they were drawing, like they actually didn't, they didn't have many things to relate it to that Mm. were other things and other examples of Australian art in similar veins, Mm. yeah. And like once you see films like that, is so iconic and just the very idea that something like Wake in Fright may not have ever existed, that like mm. this only got this only got found a few years ago and it's such like I can't think of Australian film without something like Wake in Fright mm. being at the centre of it. But so many films like that are impossible to find. There's kind of education distributors that have things like Night Cries, but some of those those really key moments in Australian cinema are almost lost there. Mm-hmm. Unless you're, you're studying them, um, it's really rare that you come across them. Mm. Definitely for me, um, an early moment of Australian cinema was um, Backroads, Philip Noyce's Backroads. I saw that at uni, and I remember that being an Australian film that was different to any of the other ones that I'd seen before. Mm. What about you, Greta? Um, to be honest, and I might be at odds with everyone here, um, I grew up in the country and so I did not want to see Australia on cinema. <laughs> I was like, just take me away from Australia. I'm surrounded by it. Um, so <laughs> I, <laughs> I really latched onto Hollywood a lot. Um, surprise. <laughs> um, and uh, it's only recently that I've really um, come to appreciate cinema like I I specifically remember uh, when Muriel's Wedding came out watching that and just being so depressed by it because there was so much familiar in it and I thought it was so horrifying and I I still to this day cannot watch Muriel's Wedding and I have a real almost a phobia of ABBA like I hate them so much so yeah Australian cinema took a long time for me to warm to so I don't have any like seminal moments with that 
I kind of feel the same because a lot, so much of Australian cinema is like the kitchen sink drama, the really gritty mm. suburban, like looking for Ella Brandy almost paints like a really rosy picture of suburbia, even though it's all like racial identity crisis and like families being torn apart by like paternity. But it's almost like a really beautiful aspirational idea of like suburban Australia, mm. whereas like the reality is, yeah, not so nice. But I, yeah. I don't know. I think so often there's this like central terror that's at the heart of it. Like mm. any representation of the Australian landscape, the majority of the time it's it's this thing that you that you can't control. But also, um, yeah, there's always some kind of element of horror, where like mm. things like picnicking at Hanging Rock, or even that um, there's this really weird fifties documentary called The Back of Beyond that follows a postman along his mail track from um, northern South Australia into southern Queensland. Um, and it's a documentary, but, like, it's just so surreal and there's, like, the landscape just swallows people up and there's mm. all these kind of ghost stories of children, children that just disappeared and no-one ever heard from them again and mm. things. And I think, yeah, there's always this kind of element of out, outsiderness and otherness, but also just sheer terror that's at mm. the centre of so many Australians. I totally agree, but I think the one thing that is standing out to me as an exception and the one, the one Australian film that I loved when I saw it, and it's always been very close to my heart, is The Castle, and I think it's a very rare example of, mm. of a really just embracing in a really joyous, like, pure way, like Australian culture. Mm. Whereas, I think you're right, like a lot of the other stuff has this really un like s sinister undercurrent. Yeah. yeah. The castle's so unique, there's nobody making fun of anybody in the castle. Yeah. Like, yeah. you feel kind of guilty if you laugh at the Kerrigans because they're so happy, whereas like Muriel's wedding, people are laughing at Muriel and so you feel like you have to support her yeah. out of like reaction to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're going to open up to any questions in a minute, but first I wanted to bring up, I'm sorry to keep harping on the Australian thing, I just feel like we've got a real link here, um, even though one of my links that I wrote down was like men and gambling, because that's <laughs> like, forms like the open, like the, the kind of like catalyst for two of the films. Also, um, Back to the Future, the almanac. <laughs> True. Guys, this thing just writes yeah. itself. Um, but one of the things that really stood out for me, Brian, and what you're talking about is the fact that Wake and Fright, the, what you mentioned is like the guilt that. Or was it, Becky, did you mention like the guilt that Australians feel about writing about ourselves or depicting ourselves on the screen, that you almost need that outsider's perspective, like a Canadian director, uh, I think I had a note, like a Jamaican-born screenwriter, an English star, like this picture of like pure terror in Australia is brought to us by people who have a totally unbiased perspective on it and can maybe be a bit more honest than we would ever be with ourselves. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a, the question that I'm posing in that article. Mm. Like, I don't, I don't really know the answer to it. Mm. But I definitely, I definitely think that there's a combination of, like, uh, guilt and, and also defensiveness mm. that means that what we tend to be, like, what Australian filmmakers are famous for is the quirky, is the, mm. like, look, aren't we zany Australians? Aren't, aren't we, like, amazing in the suburbs with our hilarious ways? And I find that... Uh, that really makes me uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. Does anybody have anything to add or any questions for our panel?
Do any of you guys have any links between what you each spoke about that you maybe, or anything from these films that you have rediscovered on this most recent viewing when you kind of had to analyse them a little deeper? Because for me, it was watching that clip from Looking for Ella Brandy and realising that I do exactly what Josie does when she's really stressed and someone, like when she's sitting in her dad's office and he brings in an extra thing for her to work on and she does, my boss is in the audience and she'll know, I just do this one and it's just like, no more. No? Just me. Okay, good. Um... possible I actually think that a lot of the <laughs> sorry Nick um, <laughs> a lot of the um, the writing that I was reading and, and it's probably because I only recently started to read so much film criticism I guess and so when I started writing I hadn't hadn't read a lot um, I found that the the writing about the films was always drawing on the narrative um, I think I still find that quite a lot like and that and I wanted to read writing that focused more on the image or that took some of those things about cinematic structure out and sort of used them, put them into the writing instead of saying, you know, these are the, this is the plot point and, then, and having an interesting and good discussion of the story and I think there's plenty of room for that but I feel like the cinematic experience is different from the literary experience and I, and I missed that in a lot of criticism. If I don't like a film? Oh. <laughs> um, I have written about films that I don't like. Um, I guess, like, I mean, I, you know, like, the, what I spoke about today do doesn't always work, and it doesn't work for everything, and, and um, I guess it's more of a, an idea that I keep in the back of my mind more than anything, and, and an approach. So even if it's a film that I don't like, I guess I still... I mean, the thing that I always keep in mind is that, you know, that's one, that's somebody's work and they put a whole lot of effort into it. So if I'm going to be critical and I don't like it, I have to have really good reasons. And if I'm going to write, I didn't like this film, then I really have to say why in a, in a fair way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you can still use it to a certain extent, but maybe less so. Um, I also just want to interject, and Serena was very modest before when she was saying that she um, she tries to, to do this and she's still working on it and she's not sure if she does it very well yet. And I've edited Serena's work a few times and I haven't, I'm not familiar with all of your work, Serena, but you do it so beautifully. So I just, if you have not read her work, please go and read it. She's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> no, but you do it really well and there's like it's very unique and it's that... Um, 
you really seem to capture, like and you were talking about affect and bringing that into the writing and, and it, it's, it is definitely there and it's a really interesting way of writing and I, mm. it was really, in, having read your work, it was really amazing for me to, to hear you talk about that scene because it was very striking to me watching that film, all the different lighting and, and there was a lot of that sort of visceral stuff that, that doesn't necessarily translate automatically to criticism, but mm. it, yeah. yeah, so I thought That's it was really true. fascinating. And, and I guess with um, the, the Killing of a Chinese Book and, and all Cassavetes films is that they're films that people have struggled to write about because they don't mm. necessarily have clear plots or, you know, in the case of the Chinese book, he goes, he seems to be making a, a gangster film, um, but then there's very little kind of, you know, of that thriller yeah, stuff going on. It's not, it's not a Scorsese <laughs> film, yeah. He fires yeah. some shots and then he jumps on a bus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, <laughs> and, and, and even like, oh, in the way, done. you know, like it's called The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, so you're building up to this moment and then all of a sudden, like, he just kills the bookie. And then, you know, <laughs> he goes on. on. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I found it really interesting because obviously you're, you're focused on the visual element of film that you... Cassavetes is such a dialogue, like famously, like screen writing awards are given out in his name because he was so heavy on dialogue. And you managed to find a film that communicated so much about a character that has pretty much zero dialogue. <laughs> and it's like one of the only scenes where this character is alone and silent in a film where he just talks at people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I guess I had chosen that for one because... The talking scenes are really long. Like, he really talks and talks and talks. <laughs> um, but I also felt that, that, you, like, that this scene in particular just shows so much of the character without the dialogue. I mean, the, the way that he talks is part of his character as well, but there are often scenes like this in Cassavetes where the film just kind of drifts off and, and you learn something about the character, but you don't necessarily know that you're learning something about the character. Mm. And also, um, he uses a song by his um, composer, Bo Harwood, that comes back again in Love Streams. So, The use I of like music that. in this film was so <laughs> beautiful. Like, the scene where the girl is auditioning to be one of his dancers and there's that incredible song that just keeps playing. Like, the diegetic sound in this film as she walks out into the street and it just keeps, keeps yeah. rolling. And it's just amazing. Yeah, his like, films use music really, really well, I mm. think. I don't know a whole lot about his films, but you do. So you're <laughs> skilled to talk about them than I would. Yeah, I just yeah no, it was actually really nice how you did that, how I um, how you showed the clip after Becky's clip with the dancing as well. Hmm. Like that dancing clip. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little self-indulgent, but also the look of the film reminds me of Greta's photography, which is very much like lomography. It has a lot of like coloured filters and gels, which is a lot of how... I was reading after watching this film that Cassavetes had his cinematographer shoot the film and like just a wash with colour to like show emotion through colour, which is so specific. I in actually the club. had a question when I was I was watching this film, and you might be able to answer it because I don't know a lot about seventies cinema, and certainly not independent seventies cinema, because um, it was seventies, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it had such a distinct look about it, um, with like the you were talking in your piece, and, and you know that sometimes it just like the the camera moves all over the frame and. You know, like it, it's it's the lighting. It sort of just sometimes get totally blown out, and the colours are so rich and saturated, and there's so many dark shadows. And is that something that was kind of a trend that was going on there in independent cinema, or was that really his style? Um, that's really Cassavetes, and this and this film is the film that he does that the most. Um, that's kind of what my honours thesis was about. Oh, well, <laughs> um, was the way that he really and. 
his cinematographer actually wanted was going to walk off the film at one point because he was putting gels on and he was like, this looks terrible. And, <laughs> and he uses um, lens flare, which is super popular now, um, <laughs> in a really original way to kind of like, it, it's always coming in like right over the, the faces of, of the figures and stuff and, and blanking them out. Um, and so, so yeah, that was definitely something that he was it's doing so that wasn't, him. yeah. That was pissing off his... <laughs> that was pissing off other people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah right, fascinating. Yeah. Are there any other questions from the audience? I have one final one, which is, um, obviously Greta and I spoke about films that we just love and would take to our desert island, but for you guys, which one, if these, if these aren't it, which ones would they be? I would take Blade Runner. <laughs> Why? Um, I just think it's the best film ever made. I, it's the best artwork <laughs> ever made in my mind. Whenever I sit down to do something, I'm almost like, why bother? I mean, there's already Blade Runner. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure. Like, in terms of... I'm not sure if you take Desert Island viewing... Is like comfort viewing. Yeah, you could need to watch this for all alone. <laughs> or something that's like going to be vaguely intellectually stimulating for the rest of time. But like in terms of comfort viewing, there's this really weird um, Judy Garland musical called The Pirate. I'm not sure if anyone's seen it. That's like completely amazing. Um, it's by Vincent Minnelli, who she married. Um, but yeah, it's just really weird and about her being kind of whisked away by this pirate um, that I really love. <laughs> I lo but um, in the same way, like, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, I could just, like, watch that and watch Marilyn forever. But in terms of films um, that, I, that I love on, I guess, more of an intellectual level, um, Fassbinder's Year of Thirteen Moons is one of my favourite films that I, I really love. Um, the Double Life of Veronique well uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, solid list. <laughs> I don't know if I could take just one film <laughs> I'd probably have to take Becky's two I have to so far. Two, yeah you've <laughs> taken four um I like a, a comfort film like I would probably take something really daggy like high fidelity but then if I was taking a Cassavetes movie <laughs> I would probably take love streams yeah, I was sorry. I was just really interested why you chose Killing of a Chinese Bookie because, like, I I love Casabitas and I love like Opening Night, um, and I really love Woman Under the Influence so much. But I'm interested why it's that film that that draws you. Um, so well, I guess I chose it tonight because it yeah. was the film that, yeah. that started me writing, and I do think about this film a lot when I'm writing, even when I'm not writing about film. Um, I don't know, it's just one of those films that yeah. was really <laughs> yeah. stuck. Was it the first Cassavetes film that you saw? It or? wasn't actually, oh, okay. no. The first Cassavetes film I saw was Faces and I couldn't watch it all the way through the first time. <laughs> yeah. Greta, how about you? Aside from the trilogy, oh. which counts as one. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was sort of like, you, you excluded me, so I was like, I, wasn't, I could have spent the whole time thinking. Um, yeah, I I don't know what to tell you. Pulp Fiction was the film that made me love cinema, so maybe it would be that. Um, and I guess if I wasn't talking about Back to the Future tonight, I would talk about that because it's just Sorry. like... <laughs> <laughs> it's not you, mate. <laughs> just hate Tarantino, don't you? <laughs> no, no, no. 
it's totally um, fine. That was a good no. Move away from me. <laughs> well, on that note, yeah, uh, we're going to wrap it up. And so, thank you all for coming, and please thank our panelists. And also on behalf of Acme, thank you to the Emerging Writers Festival for co-presenting uh, tonight's event. But once again, thank you all for coming out and just one last thanks for our speakers. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.